This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. What's going on in Chicago? What the hell is going on? Covering the big ideas. If you do not feel well, for God's sake, stay home. Save lives. The tough choices. Guacamole? No, I like guacamole. And the only three ways a Chicago alderman leaves the city council. The ballot box, the jury box, or the pine box. Now, Bill Cameron. Lisa Kaplan is here. She's the Reform for Illinois Executive Director. We're going to talk about the various ways the legislature acted to make it easier to vote, but only a little bit harder to be corrupt. Lisa, welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with the good news. In what ways is it going to be easier to vote? There's some really exciting changes in this new election reform bill. So one of the most important is there's a, a, an important expansion of vote by mail. It's going to make it a lot easier for Illinoisans to vote by mail. Now they'll be able to sign up for, to receive a mail-in ballot for every election instead of having to reapply every time they want to vote by mail. So you'll be able to sign up for what's called a permanent list, get your name on that list, And then every subsequent election, you'll just get a mail-in ballot in the mail, and you can cast your vote. Um, So that's a real step forward. The bill also requires election authorities to open a vote center in their jurisdiction. And what that is is a a bigger um, voting center than you're used to at your local precinct, where anybody in any precinct can go. So that eliminates, you know, adds another location for people to go to that might be closer to their work or some other some other place that they frequent and also eliminate some of the the confusion that some people have about which precinct to vote in. Um, It also has provisions that will hopefully ultimately make it easier for people with disabilities to vote. So there's a, there's a lot of good stuff in this bill. And I see there's something called curbside voting. What's that? Curbside voting is, it's, it's optional for election authorities, and we hear varying things. Um, not a lot of election authorities took advantage of this in the past uh, couple years that we know of, but it still makes this an option where people don't necessarily have to come into the polling place to vote. They can send election judges outside to the curb and, and help voters cast their ballots there. I see. And are there still going to be drop boxes? There are going to be drop boxes. That's something that we advocated for and we're very pleased to see made permanent. Um, Those are secure boxes that people can um, cast their ballot in without having to worry if it's going to get lost in the mail, for example, because we know some people have concerns uh, about the post office. Um, So those, those now election authorities can use them, and we know a lot of voters will be happy about that. And how expensive uh, is all this going to be on the taxpayer? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, good. I, that's I can, refreshing. I, I, can, I can speculate a little bit about potential cost savings. Um, you know, if mail-in voting expands to the point where they start reducing polling places, um, then there, there might be some long-term cost savings. We've seen that in states that have implemented widespread mail-in voting. But um, here there'll probably be some setup costs that will ultimately be made back, most likely, by the state and by local election authorities. Now, why has next year's primary been moved from March 15th down to January, or rather June 28th? That has to do with the delay in census data. So um, this will just make sure that the information that 
um, elections are set up around is accurate. So make sure we have enough time, given what happened with COVID, to incorporate that data and um, make sure voters are voting in the right places. Well, what do you think about the consistency of doing that when they didn't do that for the legislative districts and the Supreme Court districts? Um, I, I think uh, that is um, something that will need to be addressed. Um, you know, obviously it's not perfect, but it's better than not doing it at all. And there's some changes with regard to filling vacancies. What's this all about? Now there'll have to be more notice uh, for the public so that they can uh, participate or at least be aware of the appointments process. The appointments process has been um, criticized for being too closed and too, too close to party insiders. And um, this will give the public an opportunity to know about them and, and to follow along what's going on. Just adds a bit of transparency there. It's not going to solve all the problems associated with appointments, um, which, you know, are problematic from a Democratic standpoint in some respects, but it will at least give the process some more transparency. Yeah, is it such a good idea to let the party bosses continue to make the call on filling vacancies? That's the question. Um, there are many people who say that we should have elections instead, and there's certainly a lot of merit to that viewpoint. Um, some of the it's not uh, it's not an obvious choice because special elections ob uh, often have very low turnout and and can be driven by sometimes the more extreme members of the party, you know, people who show up in a low turnout election. And so there's no perfect answer to the problem of appointments. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's an ongoing discussion that the people of the state have to have. But this is at least a step towards transparency. Yeah, so often it's, you know, uh, sustaining politics as a family business, isn't it? As one retiring official passes on, in effect, to party bosses, the opportunity to uh, put their son in the job or something like that, right? Yes, and the 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 number there are a, a large number of appointed officials in the General Assembly, um, off, and they often get reelected because they have the advantage of being incumbents. And so we actually have um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but there's a, a large component of the General Assembly that was not initially elected, that was initially appointed. And so, you know, that's that's obviously problematic um, as well. Now, of course, if more people voted, problems like these political insider problems would probably go away. If uh, more people uh, became candidates, more people voted, will the reforms in any way encourage more people voting? We hope so. It, there... There is some evidence that mail-in voting and increasing access to mail-in voting, really increasing access to all kinds of voting, can boost turnout. Um, I, I think there are – you always have to consider deeper issues as well as to why people don't necessarily turn out in elections, whether they're disillusioned with their choices or with the system as a whole – 
um, or they don't necessarily even know, you know, who they're voting for, some of the officials on their ballot. So there are all kinds of deep issues that we should be looking at if we really want to take in, take on low voter turnout. But anything that makes it easier to vote is a good thing. And we do have very high turnout, voter turnout in states like Colorado that have moved to all male elections. And that's something that we can aspire to in Illinois. There's particular evidence that things like this permanent list or sending everyone a ballot can be helpful in those low visibility elections, like the special elections we were talking about, because when that voter gets the ballot in the mail, it's, you know, they don't have to remember anything. It's just there. It's a reminder and they can cast that ballot. So particularly for those lower visibility elections, um, laws like this and changes like this could be really helpful. We're talking issues with Elisa Kaplan of Reform for Illinois. Elisa, let's talk now about the tepid reforms that were passed, but don't look like, uh, you know, they're going to do much. What do you think of these? I really like your description of them as tepid. I think that's a, I think that's a great way to sum up this bill. It touches on a lot of really important areas. It touches on lobbying reform. It touches on um, independent oversight in the inspector general's office and some of the other issues that really did need changing in Illinois. The problem is they just don't go far enough. And in a lot of, um, in a lot of respects, they could be seen as mostly cosmetic. So take, for example, the new revolving door provision. The vast majority of states, some 36 states, have at least require legislators to wait at least one year before they become lobbyists. Um, and about a dozen states require two years, which is considered best practice. And what the legislature did here in Illinois was to give us six months and even only that um, applies if a member is lobbying the same General Assembly. So if they basically resign during their term, they have to wait six months before they can lobby. If they're lobbying the next General Assembly that they're not taking part in, they can lobby right away. So they could leave office uh, on the last day of session in one General Assembly and lobby their colleagues right then the next day. And that's just to us, that is really quite an embarrassing um, uh, version of a revolving door prohibition and not what we need to conquer some of the problems that we've had, the cozy relationships between lobbyists and legislators and some of the conflicts of interest that can arise when you don't have those laws. Yeah, that really is ridiculous. Even City Hall has a two-year revolving door provision, but only six months for the state. Correct. And if you think about it, there's there's just about six months before the before uh, when session between when session ends at the end of May and then when it starts again. And so this is really um, this is really just not an effective measure. It's really something that maybe looks good or looks like they address the issue, but won't have any substantive impact. Now, they were supposed to do something significant on lobbyist reform in, in the wake of the ComEd bribery scandal. What did they do, and what do you think of it? 
They enacted what's called a cross-lobbying ban, but it's only partial. Now, cross-lobbying is when uh, a member of the General Assembly, a state lawmaker, is also lobbying, being paid as a lobbyist to lobby uh, local units of government. So the problem with this really came into the spotlight with the Luis Arroyo case, where he allegedly... He was working for a lobbying client in Chicago, so lobbying the city of Chicago for this client, and he attempted to bribe a state senator to pass, to support legislation that would benefit his Chicago lobbying client. And so all of a sudden, a lot of people woke up and said, wait a minute, you mean that state lawmakers can be lobbyists at the same time they're state lawmakers? I mean, look at all the conflicts, the types of conflicts that can arise from that, from that situation. So this bill enacts a cross-lobbying ban, and it says that members of the General Assembly can't lobby other units of government. However, there's a loophole in there that says that um, they only are banned from lobbying local units of government if their employer is also registered to lobby the state assembly. And so what that means is that you could have a situation where someone is working as a lobbyist um, in Chicago on behalf of, of a client, and if that, um, that employer, that client, isn't registered to lobby the General Assembly and is only registered to lobby Chicago, that's just fine. So it's a little confusing, but the, the main point is that there's a loophole there that really shouldn't be there. We think that State lawmakers shouldn't be able to lobby local jurisdictions, period. It creates too many conflicts like we saw in the Arroyo case, and we hope they tighten up that loophole. Do they at least have to disclose more about their lobbying practices? Um, there were some reforms relating to disclosure last year um, in, in previous General Assemblies, so there is more information about what lobbyists spend and, and on clients and, and legislators and things like that, um, that wasn't so much a target of reform this year in this bill. Okay. Now, there is a legislative inspector general. Does uh, he or she get more power? A little bit, but not nearly what she needs. So the legislative inspector general right now is tasked with overseeing state lawmakers and investigating complaints about ethics violations or suspected ethics violations, for example. So you would think this is a really, really important role, and this office, especially in a place like Illinois, needs as much independence as possible. The problem is that right now, the Inspector General is really not independent at all. She has to ask legislators for permission to do basically anything. She needs to ask them if she wants to open an investigation, she needs to ask them if she wants to compel witnesses or subpoena documents. Um, she has to ask them, importantly, if she, if she can publish a report where she finds that a, a lawmaker may have committed a violation. So she has to ask them basically to do her job. And that's not independence. That's not oversight. That's not how oversight works. You shouldn't be able to ask, you shouldn't have to ask the people that you're overseeing for permission to oversee them. That's the situation that we have. Um, and we saw this really come to a head last year when a former Inspector General, Julie Porter, testified 
that she had found what she called serious wrongdoing by a sitting legislator. And she had written a report about it. And the legislators who she's supposed to oversee refused to let her publish it. So we still have no idea what's in that report. We don't know who committed this serious wrongdoing or what it was because legislators didn't want that report to see the light of day. And this bill leaves that untouched. What this bill does is allows the legislative inspector general to open investigations on her own. And that is a step forward, but it doesn't create truly independent oversight of the type we need to address the types of corruption and misconduct that we've seen in the Illinois legislature. Okay, how about this? Do legislators at least have to reveal more in their economic disclosures? In some cases, yes, and in some ways, no. So the the forms <laughs> the forms did require um, some more relevant information about the types of assets or the types of debts that that lawmakers might have, but. Um, it omitted some important things, and it even changed some things from the old forms that will give us a little less information. So one of the things that it doesn't do is require um, lawmakers to disclose potential conflicts that close family members might have. And so you could see where that's, that's a problem. If a close family member has an interest in, say, a company that might be affected by something that the legislature does, that's a conflict that that won't be revealed on these forms. Um, The other thing these forms don't do that some other states do do is ask for information about how much income is in uh, a a lawmaker might be getting from a certain source. So if somebody gets, you know, $7,500 from ComEd for a consulting fee, for example, um, they might have, you know, a conflict. That's, That's some type of conflict, but, if a lawmaker gets, you know, a $300,000 consulting fee from ComEd, that's a much bigger conflict, right? You would want to know about the difference between those two types of conflicts. And yet on these new forms, those would look exactly the same. They'd have to be reported the same way. Um, and in some cases, the new forms actually raise the threshold of the amount of income that needs to be reported. So now instead of reporting income over $1,200, they'll only have to report income over $7,500. So we have even in some respects a little less information than we had from the other, from the other forms. So uh, a mixed bag and still a lot of important work to be done on the financial disclosure forms. Yeah, this is a farce, Elisa. It tells me that Springfield still isn't ready for reform. What's it tell you? I hope that's not what it tells us, but we are very concerned that um, that with all of the spotlight on this issue, given all of the indictments we've seen, given the resignation of the longest serving House Speaker in basically United States history, um, given given just all the scandals, given the low trust that Illinoisans have in their government, Given all of the attention that has been given to the ethics issue in Illinois lately, we're concerned that this is what we get. We would have hoped for something much more comprehensive. And so we're a little worried that as the spotlight fades, you know, and if we go a certain period without scandals, for example, we're not going to see the progress on these 
issues that we need to see and, frankly, that some lawmakers are now promising us. They've promised that this is just a first step, that they're going to keep working on ethics. What we really want is for people to keep the pressure on about this issue and keep holding them accountable. Because too many times we've seen that once a scandal fades from the spotlight, the issue goes away and the legislature uh, brushes it under the rug. So that's not what we want to see this time. So keep, keep your pressure on your representatives. Keep paying attention to this issue. The work here is not done, and we just have to keep holding their feet to the fire. You know, one of my favorite questions is to ask folks, why is it that too many politicians uh, all over the place, not just Springfield, just keep stealing, Elisa, when they know the feds are probably listening? Why is it that too many just keep stealing? Well, that seems like a deeper question about human nature that I won't necessarily be able to answer. But I think one of the important points and, and one of the important answers that, that may be uh, implicated in this whole conversation is that they have the opportunity. And so what a lot of these bills and a lot of ad, our advocacy is aimed at is reducing those opportunities. Don't make it easy for them. You know, tighten up the ethics laws, tighten up the campaign finance laws, um, make it as hard as possible, reduce those conflicts of interest. If you reduce the opportunity for misconduct, you're going to get less misconduct. Um, that's just a fact. We don't have to wait for the uh, for for the attorney general or the um, for for prosecutors to come in and and get involved. That's not what we should be doing. We should be nipping these problems in the bud. We should be um, reducing conflicts of interest. We should be making sure that the primary concern of our elected officials is to pay attention to their constituents and not to their own pockets or to deep-pocketed special interests. They should put the public first, and we have a responsibility to make laws that will make sure that they do that. Good luck with that, Alisa. <laughs> Thank you so much, and thanks so much for having me. That's Alisa Kaplan. She's the executive director at Reform for Illinois, which was uh, created by Paul Simon, one of the one of the very few honest politicians I've ever covered. After a break, our Connected to Chicago Roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long, Greg Hines, and Heather Sharon. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. Now, Bill Cameron. Time for the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth with Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Hey, Lynn. Hi, everyone. Ray Long of the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hey there, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Craig. Hey, Bill. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hi, Bill. Well, as we're uh, coming on to record on Friday afternoon, we've just learned that uh, Governor Pritzker uh, to the surprise of no one, has just signed the maps <laughs> for the uh, not only the legislative districts, but also the Supreme Court and uh, the County uh, Board of Review. So, Greg, are you shocked and stunned? Uh, no, uh, this is about as predictable as it gets cold in Chicago in January. Um, I, I am mildly surprised that he did it as fast as he did. Uh, I mean, the maps were only approved this very week, less than a week ago. Um, only yesterday, the governor had said, well, he was carefully reviewing and still analyzing and studying whatever. And then, boom, all of a sudden, he uh, he signs a thing today. 
asked for an explanation. Some people close to him are saying that uh, that, that the maps had become trade fodder in the continuing fight over a new state energy bill, and they wanted to keep them separated, so they advanced their timetable and uh, and signed uh, the maps right away. You can believe that or not, but uh, it's going to subject him to somewhat more criticism that uh, this was a charade from the beginning, but maybe he doesn't care. Uh, Ray, the governor did promise he would veto an unfair map, but are you surprised? No, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, I didn't believe that the promise in the first place, and uh, I would like to know what he thinks is unfair. I mean, this tilts an already lopsided, wildly lopsided map from the current situation to give them even more breaks, and it also uh, impacts the Supreme Court, which, um, as you know, uh, one of Mike Madigan, the the, uh, ousted speaker's uh, Supreme Court uh, guys was uh, knocked off in the last election, so Republicans thought they had an actual shot in two years of uh, picking up a Supreme Court seat, but uh, that's been redesigned for to help out Democrats, and uh, Pritzker, being a good Democrat, signed it. I didn't expect anything different. Yeah, Heather, you're not surprised either, are you? I am not. Uh, it would have thrown the Democratic Party of Illinois into a tizzy, and it could have um, really complicated efforts to get other things done. Um, the governor certainly is in an awkward position with his campaign promise, but the, the Democratic Party was, was relatively united on the belief that it didn't make sense for Illinois to change the way it draws maps if no other state would, and it would eventually hurt the chances of the Democrats of maintaining their stranglehold on the Illinois congressional delegation. These maps don't include the congressional districts. Uh, they're going to wait for census figures to do that, but I think this should tell people what they're planning to do when that data does come in and they do start to draw those maps. It will not be an independent process. Now, Lynn, the congressional maps, of course, are not part of this because uh, they haven't drawn those yet. What are the implications of that? Well, the implication of uh, Pritzker will sign a, a deal that gives the Democrats every advantage they can in trying to pick up and trying to protect the seats of the vulnerable Democrats. And the most one of the most vulnerable is Lauren Underwood. Then after that, uh, they want to build up the district to give whoever is the Democrat nominated to replace Sherry Bustos. And then they are going to thread a needle, if need be, to put together some downstate Democratic territory to try and flip uh, the district that Rodney Davis may find himself in. And along the way, when they eliminate a district, it will be mainly uh, a Republican one. In a version of a map, uh, a hypothetical put out by Dave Wasserman from Cook Political Report, uh, he dissolved the Kinsinger district. And it wasn't so much as uh, retribution or anything against Kinsinger or to try and send him a message. It's because an analysis of Wasserman, who has uh, this soft, uh, map-making software, uh, the Dems figure that Kinsinger likely will lose a primary and therefore, you don't need a district with another Trumper in it. 
Now, we should talk about the rest of the session just ended, uh, particularly its uh, tepid ethics reforms. Ray, Ray, what do you think of the reforms they did enact? Well, they um, do this all the time, even uh, under uh, Speaker Madigan, although they seem to have maybe made a couple of steps toward things like they should have done year 20, 30, 40 years ago and, and put a revolving door clause in, meaning that you can't just leave one day office and then start uh, lobbying the next day. But the problem is it's only a six-month clause. So you could make it all the way through one session, step down on May 31st, and then uh, you'll be ready to go by the next session, the next spring session. So, uh, you know, a lot of people said you should have a year or a two-year revolving door clause in. Um, they beefed up, in theory, some of the really terribly uh, non-transparent economic interest statements, and they could still go much further, too. It's just that they don't want to expose themselves any more than they have to. There's just uh, a high level of, of uh, uh, lawmakers who seem to be allergic to true reform. Truly. Greg, our new speaker, did promise a new day in Springfield post-Mike Madigan. Are we getting it? Well, it's 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 a Madigan's gone and the uh, the sun has set and come back again, so it's a new day, Bill. Um, uh, I thought uh, I thought it was telling that uh, that uh, this, these these new uh, ethics rules got ridiculed by of all people, a Chicago alderman is too weak. Uh, Michelle Smith, as the head of the ethics committee of the city council, put out a press release pointing out in several instances where the city's rules now are stiffer than these new state rules. I mean, for instance, there's a two-year revolving door ban. Um, uh, uh, the inspector general in the city can can, can now can uh, investigate uh, anonymous complaints without having to expose the person to retribution. That's not the case at the state. And, you know, when the city council chuckles and says, you know, you, you guys are letting yourselves off easy, there's a problem. And uh, even Pritzker, when I talked to him yesterday, he did a round of interviews. He, he criticized. He said, hey, well, this is everybody knows. I know. You know. Everybody knows. We got to do more. He's right, but it doesn't happen, does it? Heather, what do you think? Is Springfield ready for reform? Well, I think they proved that they're not, and I don't think any of us are surprised. I was expecting more of a robust change to the state's lobbying laws, since that's what is really at the center of the ComEd scandal. It has, is what has landed uh, former state Senator Louis Arroyo um, in legal jeopardy and is sort of at the root of sort of the most recent round of scandals. But these reforms are, are really, um, you know, tinkering at the, at the margins, I think, is the consensus view. And it, it narrowly avoided um, really disrupting what the city has done, because up until the 11th hour, there was a provision in the uh, ethics bill that would have overruled Chicago's ethics rule, which is Greg is completely right in that they are significantly tougher. And um, when I spoke with Alderman Michelle Smith, she was quite relieved that that provision was, was taken out. Um, but I, I think it points to the real issue. Um, that if, if someplace like Chicago, which of course has a well-deserved reputation for shenanigans, is got tougher rules on, on its books, I, I think that should prompt some soul-searching. How about you, Lynn? Uh, nothing much changes in Springfield, does it? 
when it comes to ethics reform, you're always going to have the uh, the party in charge will always have the thumb on the scale, and they they the answers haven't been that hard. There's just been no willingness to do it. I mean, I have I can only uh, say ditto to what everyone else has said. Now, one uh, one measure that did advance but has not been passed yet, in defiance of Mayor Lightfoot, is the elected school board in the form of a 21 member board that would be fully elected by uh, 2027. Um, Greg, do you think this is going to pass, or what's going to happen to this as Lightfoot continues to raise hell about it? Uh, the support for uh, for an, a fully elected school board is only stronger in the House than it was in the Senate. The Senate was always the roadblock, and now that the bill is out and it's uh, and it calls for a, a fully elected board by the uh, elections, the general elections in, in November of uh, 2026. Uh, I think you can uh, bet the farm, bet the ranch, bet everything that the House is going to approve this thing as soon as they get back. I mean, the mayor does have a small. Uh, uh, window of opportunity here to admit reality, uh, accept political de- defeat, and, and maybe on the edges improve this a little bit. Uh, but uh, so far, she's not shown a willingness to, to recognize the, the reality that, like it or not, and I happen to agree with the mayor on this, uh, she doesn't have the votes. The other side's got the votes. And, you know, she should have sued for peace on this a long time ago, and she hasn't. And uh, as a result, I think it's almost certain the policy is going to do it, perhaps with a slight change or two on the, on the margins. Uh, Ray, what do you think? How do you interpret these various moves toward an elected school board? I think it uh, totally um, uh, will empower the unions to uh, put 21 members on on the school board, and that will be somewhat like the fox guarding the chicken house. Um, but the you know that's that's uh, assuming that the the union folks won't uh, you know be good watchdogs. I'm not ready to to assume that, but that certainly is the criticism that comes with this, that if you have people who are politically active, and you do with the Chicago Teachers Union, you will have them politically active in every one of these seats. And these, all of these seats could be positions that could be used to springboard into other positions, such as aldermen, such as Congress, such as the state house, many of these um, uh, positions will be, you know, very much in the whole political whirlwind here. And the question a lot of people have also is, will they hold the line on taxes or will they be pushing for bigger raises and bigger pensions and bigger property tax bills for people in Chicago? I think we know the answer to that. Uh, Heather, Heather, what do you think? Is this a case of the teachers' union wanting to be management too? No, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that's part of it. But the fact of the matter is, is that every other municipality in Illinois elects its own school board. And if you want to make the argument that Chicago is somehow ungovernable in terms of a school district, you're going to have to grapple with the fact that that in some form disenfranchises a, a large number of black and Latino voters. And I think that that is ultimately what it has come down to. 
Um, if the school board is 21 members, uh, regardless of whether it's delayed until 2027, I think we have to see that as a big loss for Mayor Lightfoot because that has been her main complaint since she took office. Although it's worth reminding that everybody that she campaigned in favor of a fully elected school board during the campaign and then changed her tune. And I, I think that, um, you know, certainly you can ask questions about how to regulate campaign, fi campaign funding. But um, the fact of the matter is, is that I think it's, it's, an, it's an odd argument to hear the mayor arguing that an elected school board would mean less democracy for Chicago residents than more democracy when these schools have been run since 1995 by a single person, that person in the fifth floor of City Hall. Yeah. If I could, if I could dissent just a tad from that, uh, what I think the mayor, is, without the, without trying to take away any merit from from Heather's argument, because a lot of Chicagoans clearly agree with that, um, what I think the mayor is pointing to is is what's happened in cases like Los Angeles, uh, where it has an elected school board. Uh, they, uh, they, in their recent election, a million bucks was spent. A million bucks, and, you, and that didn't come from little people who want representation. It came from big interest groups. In the, in the case of L.A., it came from the from the teachers union. It was battling with charter school advocates, and both sides poured a ton of money in. Um, if you look at uh, uh, all the elections in other towns and communities in Chicago, uh, in, the, in Illinois, and Heather is right that uh, Chicago is the only one that doesn't have an elected board, there's usually about 14 people that vote in most of those elections. Uh, it's because you know people have other lives to lead. It's hard, hard enough to get them to vote for governor or senator, for crying out loud, much less school board. Um, and I think the mayor is kind of referencing that in a sense, too, that uh, that uh, these things, after a while, tend to be very lightly uh, uh, Attended, and it's only the special interest groups. And then there's one other thing which is kind of flown under the radar, which is under the terms of this bill, uh, undocumented uh, immigrants, and there's a fair amount of, uh, of uh, undocumented immigrants who have kids in Chicago public schools, would not be able to vote and would not be able to run. Uh, that's with that, with the Latino community, that's a big issue. Yeah. Uh, Lynn, I know the school board is way off your beat, but do you have a feeling about the various? maneuvers of the power plays in this uh, issue? Well, actually, I'm glad you asked because on our last At the Table show that I co-host uh, with Laura Washington, we did a special show just on the prospect of an elected school board, and we had uh, Stacey uh, Gates from the CTU, and no, so we had the CTU and the City Hall uh, segments on it, and here's what becomes clear. The the CTU is active politically. They have at least two political action funds, and their kind of secret weapon is when I looked, most of their money is spent. It's, it's not spent. It, they have the ability to raise small-dollar donations, but they know what they are up against. Uh, you have in Illinois the potential of a Ken Griffin with his billions coming in who feels strongly about things like schools, and we know that the Walton family from the Walmart uh, uh, from the Walmart family, the Waltons from the Walmart family, I know uh, from stories I've done that they have put in considerable money into the charter movement in Illinois. So what you'll have is a citywide elections that are going to be uh, somewhere between a congressional race and a ward race. These will be big. I imagine the endorsement of the CTU, however they get to it, and if you go back 
everyone who's listening kind of look at this segment. This, you know, the CTU kind of fought me a little bit on this when I said you're going to run a slate or do endorsements, and there is discussion about their con- consultative process. But however you get to it, in the end, the CTU made donations uh, to state reps in Springfield. At the end, they make a decision. So money, politics, power, uh, and how all this will be focused just on school policy in the beginning, how this can be an election that could really change education in Chicago schools and not chase potential homeowners away or chase people with young kids out into the suburbs. That is really the responsibility that Springfield is taking on in making this change in, in, in holding hands with the union. There's a new poll out giving Lightfoot 48% popularity. Uh, I think it's a reputable poll of 1,000 people. Heather, are you surprised that Lightfoot could get uh, 48% despite all the problems? I don't. Um, I think that that is um, very plausible, considering that I think there are still a good number of Chicagoans who give her credit for leading the city through the pandemic um, as as she has. Uh, I think the real question is, well, what do people think about how she handles post-COVID, which as hard as the pandemic was, I think the you know, aftermath has the potential to be even harder. And um, I'm exhausted for her and myself and all of us covering <laughs> it, just, just thinking about it. But um, I think there is a warning sign, though. You know, the typical rule of thumb is that if you're an incumbent below 50% approval rating, you are vulnerable to losing uh, a bid for re-election. So I think that she has to maybe breathe a small sigh of relief with knowing that the big challenges that she faces um, are not in her rearview mirror by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Greg, what do you think of Lightfoot getting 48% in this poll? Uh, I think uh, Heather uh, came pretty close to the way it is here. Um, uh, it's a little higher than I might have expected, but uh, but uh, Heather is correct that uh, any incumbent who gets less than 50 percent, uh, who is underwater, to use the, the term in the trade, uh, is vulnerable. The question is is uh, who's going to who's going to who's going to run? Is anybody going to run? I mean, nobody. You can't lose to. You can have low poll rankings, but if nobody's there trying to take advantage of it, um, uh, you're you're in decent shape. I mean, most of us expect somebody from the political left, uh, maybe the aforementioned Ms. Gates from the CTU or somebody else to run. Uh, I've been looking for somebody from the political right. Uh, but I think this kind of explains, in part, uh, the 48%, why the mayor went after us in the media with such a vehemence a couple of weeks ago. Said, hey, you know, you, uh, you're, not, you're not black and Latino like Chicago. You're a bunch of rich white guys. Uh, you don't represent us. Um, uh, you, you know, you put if you can put together black votes and, and, and brown votes in Chicago, guess what? You got a majority, uh, and the mayor doesn't have that yet, as this poll suggests. So it maybe explains some of her conduct a little bit. That's Greg Hines of Cranes. Thanks to him, also to Heather Sharon of WTTW, Lynn Sweet of the Sun Times, and Ray Long of the Tribune. Up next, my colleague Lauren Cohn. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Lauren Cohen for Connected to Chicago. Mayor Lightfoot announced the Shy Biz Strong initiative to help jumpstart the economic recovery efforts by providing economic relief to businesses and helping them to cut through excessive bureaucracy. Joining me is co-founder and president of the Small Business Advocacy Council, Elliot Richardson. Thanks for being here. Lauren, thank you for having me. 
What's an example of cutting through the red tape? You know, right now, in order for a small and local business to obtain a sign permit to display a simple sign in the city of Chicago, it takes the approval of the entire city council. That means an ordinance that's passed by city council for a simple sign. That is unnecessary and nonsensical red tape. It delays the process for a small business to display their sign, to let the community know they're open for business. And by eliminating that red tape, they are going to help small businesses prosper and local communities recover from the pandemic. All right. Sounds like common sense. Do you think more regulations should be relaxed? And if so, which ones? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the Shy Biz Ordinance package, it's going to make it easier for restaurants that move into space that was previously occupied by other restaurants to open up and get going. It's going to extend the ability for restaurants to provide uh, um, alcohol um, to go. That's a very, very popular program when done in a safe manner. We got to legalize those sidewalk signs that right now are presently illegal, yet you see people all over with them that says, hey, come into my establishment. The patrons come back in and get two for one. I mean, there's so much red tape right now and bureaucratic hurdles that small businesses in Chicago have to have to jump through. This is the time to get rid of them. You brought up the cocktail to go. Well, some people are concerned about elements of the ordinance, for example, ending the liquor sales after 10 p.m. What do you say to those critics of that one? I would say to the critics of some of the different pieces in this ordinance that, you know, there is certainly that point of view. Um, and people need to get to the table and negotiate and compromise. I can't tell you we are in favor of that particular piece of legislation um, that's part of this overall package, but what we are in favor of is getting mayor's office and aldermen and policymakers to the table, um, putting small businesses and local communities over politics and getting to a place where we can pass reforms that will help the small business community and the Chicago economy recover from the pandemic. Finally, what more is the SBAC doing to help small business? We're advocating on a federal and a state and a local level. We're a nonpartisan organization and we're laser focused on policies that will help small businesses not only recover from the pandemic, but thrive in the future. So we're working at all those different places to pass good policies for the small business community. SBAC's Elliot Richardson, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WLS News. Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.